We have two weeks left in the book of Revelation. And uh, it's going to be next week and the week after. Okay? So this morning we're going to be in First Peter chapter 2. We're going to take a little detour, and I'll tell you why. Um, first, we're getting ready to do the millennium, okay? So uh, that's right there at the beginning of chapter 20, Revelation 20. And that's a big passage. That's probably, if there were going to be, if there was going to be a section out of the book of Revelation that you have heard something about, it's Revelation 20. And, um, and I, uh, and I, I really want that, uh, I want to be, I'll just be honest, I want to be better prepared. I've been on the road for two weeks. And, um, and I thought over those two weeks I would be able to squirrel away and do the kind of work on it that I wanted to, and it didn't happen. So um, uh, that combined with going to General Assembly. So, so here's what happens. Um, if you're not quite familiar with what's going on at General Assembly, 12 to 1,400, 1,500 teaching elders and ruling elders from the denomination converge on a convention hall somewhere and just it was Greensboro North Carolina and, and we all get together and um, and so over two over the course of two weeks so our family went up to Pennsylvania and uh, we had Caitlin's graduation and we were there at Veritas Press Scholars Academy so it's a big gathering of about a thousand folks um, all of them kind of like-minded in a lot of ways, uh, Christians, believers from all over the place. And um, and then we left there, and we were home. I was home for a couple of days, and then I went to chaplain training. So I went to the PCA has a chaplain training on before General Assembly for military and hospital chaplains for our denomination. And so I left last Friday to go to that training, which was uh, in Greensboro before General Assembly. And so I sat there, so I had just been with all kinds of people from churches all over the place. And then I went to chaplain training, and I sat with about 50 or 60 chaplains, most of them Army, um, with a few air and a couple of Navy guys sprinkled in and some hospital chaplains. And so I sat with them and and went through some really amazing training. And we talked about things like uh, moral injury, um, which... Uh, if you're not quite familiar with that, it, it has to do with um, it has to do with uh, pain and suffering that you are personally responsible for, in one way or another. Pain, suffering, death, loss of life, and um, and so a lot of our military members are experiencing uh, a great deal of moral injury because, as pilots, they drop bombs on homes that killed civilians or. They were calling in airstrikes or, you know, all sorts of things like that. And chaplains deal with moral injury a fair bit because we're counseling them. And then there can be a secondary effect when you're counseling, you're working through helping people deal with those kinds of moral injuries. You yourself become a participant in it. And so there were, there were both and. And so I sat with all these military chaplains and we talked about all these sorts of things. And, you know, it's things like this. Like, so we have, uh, we have, uh, remote piloted aircraft. 
which is anathema to our piloted aircraft guys, but we have, they're called RPA missions, right? And these are drones. These are drone pilots. We have a unit in Birmingham, Alabama. It's a National Guard unit. So imagine this, right? Imagine you, uh, you come in for a day of orders, right? So your regular job is your, uh, uh, you're a financial advisor, but you're an RPA pilot and the Air National Guard. And so they bring you in on orders. You go in, you work uh, Monday and Tuesday, and you sit in a little box, and you fly a remotely piloted airplane over, let's say, the Horn of Africa somewhere. And uh, and you're called upon to drop bombs on bad guys. And so you kill people. And then you walk out of that cubicle, you get in your car, you go home and you have dinner with your wife and your kids, and then the next day you're telling people about stocks and bonds. It's hard stuff. And so those are the kinds of things chaplains are thinking about. And so I sat in that room with all of those guys and I listened to all of that. And I um, and then I went and I sat with 1,200 pastors. And um, And then I left there and I went to a funeral yesterday for Dr. Barton, and I was with his family, and I happened to spend some time with a chaplain friend of mine who has done three tours in Iraq. He's a lieutenant colonel now, and uh, war has changed him dramatically. So all of those experiences had been rolling around, rattling around in my heart and my head, and... Um, and one of the things that was really fascinating and, and remarkable all of that is I'm thinking about the church. I'm thinking about who we are. I'm thinking about what we're doing here. I'm thinking about our church, right? Because I, I meet, I'm meeting all of these guys and the question is, so they're all asking, but, you know, you meet a hundred, I meet a hundred, I run into a hundred guys I know and they all ask me the same question. Where are you? Hey, okay. and do you like it? How's it, how's it going? Those are the two questions. And I answered them a hundred times. And then if they press a little bit further, they may ask me this question. What do you like about it? Because I told them I love it. It's the best pastoral ministry I've ever been a part of. And so I love it. And then they go, well, what do you love about it? Because they probably didn't love theirs. <laughs> right? So we're always looking, right? You know, what is it? What can I find? What, what, what is going on there that can help me? Or, or, you know, those are the kinds of things. And so, we try to do this, uh, you know, at least once a year. We, we try to ask the question, who are we and what are we doing at Lake Oconee? What is this fellowship about? What is this church about? And so I want us to spend a couple of minutes, and I, and I want to take you to passage. And I think we've been there once before. We're going to go back there. We'll probably go back a good deal because it is the passage that really is directing the ship. And so I want us to always have it before us, kind of have it in our minds. And it's First uh, Peter chapter 2. And so as you turn there, we're going to do verses, uh, we're going to look at verses 4 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Let me read it for us. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, 
a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me pray. Father, we want to thank you uh, for this word. And Father, thank you that your word leads us, it guides us, it directs us, it, it gives us the substance of who we are, what you are doing with us, and how you're doing it. And so, Father, I want us to know this. Would it be our heartbeat? Would it be that thing which gives to us our sense of purpose and an understanding of who we are and what you're doing? All for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is that passage that I think really gives us our direction. And so what does it tell us? Three things, of course, it tells us our purpose, it tells us who we are as a people, and it tells us what his provision is. So let's look at his purpose. What does he have for, for us? What is he doing? Peter tells us that he is building us into a spiritual house. And in that spiritual house, God is going to dwell. And so this spiritual house is where he dwells. God with his people. God has always had a dwelling place. So as, as we go back and we look at the Old Testament, we see God, um, as he begins to meet with his people, He constitutes them. He comes, he meets with them on Sinai, and he makes a covenant with them. You know, I will be your God, you will be my people. And then he gives to them plans for the tabernacle. And so this tabernacle is the place where God's presence dwelled in the midst of his people. And there's a lot of back and forth about that and God being able to be there or not be there because of who they were. And you remember Moses interceding for his people. Uh, but that was the dwelling place. That was where God met with his people. And, and there was a visible picture there as he descended in a cloud over um, uh, the most holy place. And then later he gets a, um, a more, um, you know, it's not a tent any longer. It's, it's the temple. And that becomes the place where God meets with his people and where they can go and expect it hope and long for something to happen as they meet with God. So that's his dwelling place 
in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple. And then when you get to the New Testament, you see that, that God is meeting with his people in the person of Jesus. And so in John chapter 1, we get this language, right, where it talks about that the word was made flesh and he came. And the, the literal word is he tabernacled among us. Okay, He made his dwelling in our midst. And so God has always had this dwelling in, in and among his people. He, he comes and he meets with those and meets with us. And those are the places where he has met with us. But Jesus leaves. So after the resurrection, Jesus meets with his disciples and then he ascends into heaven. And before he does that, he promises them that, that he will send a helper. And so the spirit comes down and indwells those believers as they are there. And there's a visual visual representation of that in Acts 1, Acts 2. God's presence is now with his people. And so Peter is picking up on that language as he looks at us and he says that we are like living stones and we're being built into a spiritual house. So we are the dwelling place of God. Now, we are, in two senses, the dwelling place of God. We're the dwelling place of God individually, right? God's Spirit resides in us. But we're the dwelling place of, of the Spirit of God corporately. As we're built together as living stones. And here's what I would say about that. That there's something different about that. Something happens when we are together. Okay? Um, you don't have much of a house when you have a single stone, do you? No. You really only have that dwelling place in a rich, full way when the stones are together. And that's what we would just describe as good Presbyterians as corporate worship. Right, we all get together and we praise God together, and um, but but it's true that something happens when God's people are together, and so He inhabits the praises of His people as we join together and have worship, as as we meet together, as we as we come together and we we pray and we hear the word and we fellowship and we we do some life together. This sweet fellowship of worshiping people is special. This is the place that God promises to be. And because we're the church. Now, we have, we have a couple of senses about the church, right? So one of the things that I was experiencing as I was gone and I was thinking about was how vast the church is. And so we have this, we have this invisible church that's spread all over the globe. But then we have the gathered church that gathers together in this locale and that locale and this locale and the other locale. And, and when that church is gathered, there's something special about that gathering. And we should anticipate that when we gather, that when we come together, that God is going to do something special here. He's going to meet with us. Um. If you look at a passage like Isaiah 6, right? So in Isaiah 6, you've got Isaiah, who's no doubt had gone to the temple every day for a long, long time. 
And he's going to the temple. And at the temple, what does he see? He has an experience. God breaks through and meets with him there. And he sees the glory of God, the, the, the train of his robe filling the temple. And, and, you know, it's, it's magnificent for him. But God broke through in a special way. How many times had he been to the temple? Hundreds, probably thousands. But on this occasion, God met him in a special way. How many times had the disciples been with Jesus, and yet there was only one um, time in which he was transfigured, the glory of God broke through, the heavens opened up, and, and Peter, James, and John, you know, got to behold the glory of God descending as, as God showed himself. And Jesus was transfigured there before their very eyes. Something special happened. They'd been with him every day for days, for, for several years. And so as you and I gather together, we should hope for, long for, pray for, expect that God is doing something in our midst because He tells us that we are living stones being built together into a spiritual house where God dwells. And so there's just something special about our fellowship. You know, um, I had the opportunity. So at our General Assembly, um, uh, we had our first moderator from South Korea moderated our General Assembly. And, um, and I was telling the folks in our, in our little Sunday school this morning, we were, I was just sharing. It was really neat. It was a neat opportunity as we just kind of, all right, you know, see some neat things happening in our denomination. But I was sharing with them about the fact that the gospel really didn't even go to the Korean peninsula until the early 1900s. Pyongyang was the central location where missionaries went early in the 1900s. And now, over a third of the Korean peninsula is Christian. That's remarkable, right? And and that's an outbreaking, if you will, of God's Spirit, of His work there in the Korean peninsula. And and that has happened in all kinds of different places. We meet week after week after week. And perhaps you think, well, it's, it's, you know, aside from Sam's preaching, there's just not much happening. <laughs> but really, for us to come expectantly, praying, hoping, right? Who knows what the Lord will do here at the lake? Who knows how the Lord will use our fellowship other than just building you, sustaining you, encouraging you, being for you the body of Christ when you go through trouble and hardship, all of those sorts of things. Who knows what the Lord has planned for Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church and our other sister churches as we proclaim the gospel here at the lake? Is there a revival in our future? Maybe there's a... Many revival that's already happening in your life and my life. That God does those things as He builds us together. We are His habitation. That's what I want. That's what He wants for us here at Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. So I hope as you come, as we meet, you will be longing, expecting, and praying that He is doing something in us. How is He doing it? Well, It says that he's doing it through 
his people. He says we're being built together into a spiritual house to be what? A holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifice. A holy priesthood. Think about that. You are priests. You're a holy priesthood. This isn't some special group that Peter's writing to. He's writing to his to a church. He's and and thereby he's writing to us. Now, do you do you think of yourself as a priest? Probably not. Because typically what what we have had and and this would have been really remarkable stuff for Peter's hearers early hearers because they knew what priests were. They knew what the meeting place was as a as a temple, right? So religions have priests, they have temples, and they have sacrifices. And so they would have understood that. So, But this would have been radically different language. Like, hold on, we're a royal priesthood? Why, how could that be? But we bear Christ to the world and thereby God. We're the, we are, we are the ones who bridge the gap. So I'm just together with 1200 pastors in Greensboro, North Carolina. That sounds like the start of a joke. What, you know, what do you have when you have 1200 pastors together at the same time? At the bottom of the ocean? A good start or something? I don't know. But, so there's 1200 of us, PCA pastors together. And you think, wow, now that's a kingdom of priests, right? All those pastors there together, ruling and teaching elders, and they're all there. And, and no, we were no more a gathering of priests than we are here this morning. That's the remarkable language. That's the remarkable part of what Peter is saying. We're a royal priesthood. And now what does the priest do? The priest bridges the gap between you know, so typically what you would have is you would have your really holy people, your people who, right, they do the communicating with God and then they communicate to the regular folks. And that's typically the way it would have been understood. And that's the way it was. But, but Jesus came and he bridged that gap because he was the prophet, priest, and king. And so he comes as the priest and he bridges the gap once for all. He builds the bridge between us and God. And so now we are those people who take God to the people. To the people who don't know him, we are their priest. We are bearing Christ to the world around us. We don't wear robes, you don't have a clerical collar, but you are a priest. And this is one of the things that Martin Luther rediscovered during the Reformation. Because the Catholic Church had priests, and they were the holy men, and they did the holy work, and then the common people just did common work. And Martin Luther recovered this idea, and here it is in the, the letter to 1 Peter, that we are being built together into a spiritual house, and we're to be a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood for God. It's really remarkable. 
that he says that. And so I hope that you'll see the importance of your ministry, right? Your ministry. So my ministry as your pastor is to preach and teach and lead. That's, that's my calling. I'm one of you, I'm one of the priests. And you are a priest and you have gifts and you have talents and you have abilities and you've been called to use those both in the church and in the world. And so that would be a good question. How am I, how, how am I doing in my priestly duties? How's that going for me? What does your priestly ministry look like? How are you bearing God and Christ to the world? How are you bridging that gap? And that's just kind of a good personal question. Like, how am I doing in my job uh, as, a, as a priest to the world, to a dying world? Now let's look at the last point. So we see his purpose. We see his people, and the last thing is his provision. How do we do it? How does that happen? How do how do you stay motivated? How do you stay uh, how do you stay focused on what your calling is? And of course, we'd say this you know Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we stay focused when we stay focused in the gospel. And he gives that to us. If you move down to verse nine. You'll see him. He picks it up in at least three parts here, right? He says, but you are a chosen people. Then he uses that phrase again, a royal priesthood. So, but we're chosen. Now, we're not choice people. Someone, I've heard someone say that before. We're not choice people. It means we're not, we're not better. We're not like a choice cut of steak. You know, the, we're not the next level up kind of a cut. There's nothing special in us. There's nothing remarkable about us at all. In fact, one of the things we see all the way down through Scripture is God God typically chooses people who are just average or below average in their abilities. Think Moses and, and Peter and, you know, Paul, guys like that, and, and, and ladies as well, right? So we're just chosen. But think about what a grace that is that he has set his love on you, that that. That he knows you, that he has called you to be one of his own. You're a chosen people. That's a grace of God. It, not of anything that you could do, but only of him. So you're a chosen people. And he says a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then he just says this, God's special possession. God's special possession. Now let me ask you a question. What does God possess? Everything. Go into the night, walk into the night, look up into the heavens, and look at that. He owns that. He made that. It's His. He owns, right, the cattle on a thousand hills, which means He owns all of it. It's all his. He created this world. And, and so everything is his possession. He owns it all. But what does Peter say? He says, you are his special possession. Now, do you have, a spe- do you have something that is a special possession in your life? 
something perhaps that someone gave you. Jody's dad carries a silver dollar around. Does he still carry that? Keep it in his pocket. He has the silver dollar, and I think the story goes that his dad um, was on a ship in the South Pacific, and that coin went over, and, and he, did he pay a diver? He paid a diver, a, a Filipino diver, to dive down and get that coin, and he brought it back up and gave it back to Bill's father, and he passed that on to Bill. And the last time I was with he carries that with him all the time. Uh, it's a special possession, right? It's, he's got a lot of stuff. He's got all kinds of you know, rings. He owns a house. He owns a car. He doesn't go anywhere without that silver dollar. It's a special possession. You probably have something like that. Someone gave you something. It's a, it's a treasured, that's a better translation, a treasured possession. Like, you know, the house can burn down, all that sort of thing, but you've got a safe in there that's a fireproof safe, right? And you only put a few things in there because they're treasured. And so Peter is saying, you are God's treasured possession. There aren't many of those. He loves you. That's His grace. And then the last thing. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received. That's a quote from Hosea 2.23. Hey, that comes out of Hosea. And if you know anything about the story of Hosea, is a, is a picture. And Hosea is being encouraged to take to himself uh, a wife who was an adulteress. And, uh, and it, it, the picture is of Israel. And Israel was cut off. But God says, I will make you my people. Once you were not a people, once you were cut off, but now you are my people. And how does that happen? That happens only by way of a sacrifice. You only become the people of God. You only become His people because Jesus Christ gave Himself for you. He paid the penalty for your sin. And so these three things come together in this picture and show us the grace of God, right? It's amazing. It's free. He chose you. He loved you. He shows you how much He loves you. You are His treasured possession. And He reminds you that He purchased you. Once you weren't a people, now you are a people. All on account of of the sacrifice of His Son. That's the grace of God. Wrap those three up and you have a beautiful picture of the grace of God. And so, take all of that and put it together. What is He doing? He's building together a spiritual house as His people. A people that love each other, that show the grace and glory of God to the world, the way that we interact, the way we care for each other, the way we sustain one another, the way we do life together. 
messy as it is? How does He build that temple? He uses us. He transforms us. He makes us into a holy priesthood. He gives us a job, a function within that kingdom, within that body. How does He motivate us? How does He move us in the right direction? How does He keep us together? What is the oil that keeps us from killing each other inside of this living house? It's the gospel. Gospel is the foundation, the formation, and the motivation of the Christian life. That good news that we don't just, it doesn't just save us. It is the part, it is a part of everything that happens all along the way. We don't do anything that is God honoring and brings, that, that brings glory to Him that isn't centered in the gospel, in the good news. And that's who we are. And that's why from this pulpit, as long as I'm here, it is going to be a gospel message, grace-filled, Jesus-centered message. Because I don't have anything else. I can't do that. I can't build us into that amazingly beautiful community. Only He can. I didn't make you a priest. He did. And I don't have any other motivation. A bull whip doesn't work. Right? Making you feel guilty will never work. The only thing that will do it is that gospel. He loved you. He gave himself for you. And you are his treasured possession. Revel in that. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for this amazingly, amazingly good news for us. Father, our chains are gone. We've been set free to live for you. Father, we want to more accurately reflect your glory in our community. Thank you for these folks who have gathered here, who've covenanted together, who have joined in fellowship with one another, who have said, I do to you and to each other. Father, we pray that we will continue to learn and grow. This will be a place where your glory resides. It will be good for us, glorifying for you in Jesus' name.